0: Music means it's the last radio hour of the week. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. Once a week we go into big stuff and issues that never go away with Dr. Larry Arne and usually one or more of his colleagues. It's just Dr. Arn and I. Dr. Arn is the president of Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale are found at hillsdale.edu. Good morning, Dr. Arne. How are you? I'm great. You know, I read through the Hillsdale Reader. I learned stuff I didn't know. and uh, and, and I thought I knew most of this stuff. But, for example... Uh, on page one sixteen, the colonists were the most highly educated people in the world, and legal knowledge was especially widely diffused among them. I call attention to this because you usually are scornful of lawyers, but the Hillsdale Reader is actually celebratory of the number of lawyers and their prominence in pre-revolutionary America.
1: Yeah, but of course, what that those lawyers are different than most <laughs> today' present company, accepted perhaps. Uh, they, their, their great act was to throw off the laws that had been governing them. And uh, that meant that respect for the law they had, but on the other hand, <laughs> if they didn't like it, they'd
0: change it. There uh, are lots of lawyers did good stuff. I, I was fascinated by I'm also fascinated by this. Fifty percent of adult white males had the vote in the colonies, and indeed, in various parts of the colonies, Pennsylvania abolished its upper house, went to a unicameral legislature, Uh, Maryland became the first polity in history to provide universal male suffrage, and women with property could vote under New Jersey's revolutionary constitution. We were quite the innovators prior, up north at least, prior to the uh, Declaration of Independence. There had never been uh, anywhere in the world representative
1: institutions like the ones that grew up in, in the colonies. And we recall that they had a long time to do that. You know, from the first decade of the 17th century until the second half of the 18th century, uh, we were governed almost without communication with Great Britain, and and uh, and they what they do? Well, they they built these bottom-up representative institutions. They started with town meetings, but soon, because you know the country was big even back then, before it grew, uh, they had to have representatives. They couldn't they couldn't you couldn't have a town meeting of the 13 colonies which is why they appointed a congress just as soon as all this crisis started and uh and that that meant that we had taken the art of, of representation and and a free government farther than anyone in history had ever taken it and uh, my my own opinion is i don't think that the british well some of them did but the the ones who got into power Lord North especially, uh, in, in, uh, in the period from 1763 until 1783 when the revolution was complete, they just never understood. They didn't know what they were dealing with. And uh, it was a big step when, uh, in 1774, uh, Ben Franklin, you know, we've just been talking about him, and he was a great man. And there was huge confidence in him in the colonies. And they thought over there that we're going to send him over there and he will explain. Well, he actually got in front of parliament and they just ridiculed him and shouted him down. And so he wrote back and said, there's going to be a war. (laughs) And and sure enough, there was.
0: We sent our best shot and it didn't work. Now, for the 25 years I've been teaching con law, the second lecture is always a brief history of nearly everything that goes over the Greeks, the Romans, uh, the Jews, the English, and the Americans. How do we end up in this room in this time teaching con law? And the first three I'm going to leave aside, but I always insist that my classes know about two revolutions, because two revolutions before our revolution actually fed into our revolution, and I am pleased and a little bit relieved that the Hillsdale Reader shares my point of view that you really can't understand the American Revolution of the 18th century without understanding what went on in Great Britain in the 17th century twice. Do you want to expand on that, Dr. Earn? Uh
1: Well, the, uh, the British became fond of deposing their kings and once executing him. And what was the issue was the same both times, uh, and that was he was acting, especially in revenue matters, without the approval of Parliament. And the Parliament wouldn't, uh, there, were, there was a religious uh, component to this. Uh, the Stuarts had Catholic leanings, and England had become decidedly Protestant under Elizabeth I, especially. And so uh, uh, they uh, they suspected them, and then that reflected then the alliances that the king made. The the the, the Stuarts were close to both James I and and Charles I were close to France and Spain, great Catholic powers, and uh, and so they, uh, you know, they they were nervous about that. And the disposition of the of the revenues of England was that the king was very rich, and he could sort of run his court, run his administration with the revenues that he controlled, you know, mostly by owning land and people paying rent. But if it came to a war, he wasn't rich enough. And so he had to go ask them. and uh, and they he didn't want to convene Parliament. They were they were troublesome. Uh, they compelled Charles the First to execute one of his prime advisors, and that was distasteful to him, of course. And his wife really didn't like it. And uh, and so you know, I mean, they, it's, these are rough times, right? I mean that 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 minister got executed, his head cut. Yeah, he got his head cut off, and so that those are hard things, right? And then you know, finally they just, and then the king sent uh, soldiers to the House of Commons. We've talked about this before. It's now the great no-no that anybody, any any power, any executive power, should enter the House of Commons without permission of the House, because he sent soldiers to arrest. Several people, Hampton and and Pym and Oliver Cromwell, significantly. uh, And they had fled. They knew they were coming. And so there he is with a bunch of soldiers staring around at the House of Commons. And that's as great a symbol as there could be, and all the symbol they needed. And the next thing you know, they formed an army, and they started fighting. And the fighting was back and forth kind of even, and then Oliver Cromwell went away for a year and he formed the greatest army that had ever been formed in England, called the New Model Army. And they just routed the monarchists.
0: They uh, fell as stubble before our side, I believe, was what he said about one of the battles. And they they win, and they cut off Charles's head. And you would have think that the monarchy would have learned. But come around 1688, the glorious revolution, it happened. Again, the meanwhile, over in the colonies, they're just trying to stay alive, right? But they're yeah. watching. They're watching. Well, the... So the ideas, you know, ideas
1: go faster than ships. And so the the debate about what constitutes political right, you know, much stimulated, by the way, by the experience in America. Because, you know, just look what they're doing. It's never never been seen before. And you've got John Block, you know, writing before this, not so long before this. And so this idea that authority to govern comes from the governed, was getting about. And that was an issue in both of those revolutions. Uh, The second revolution, they didn't kill the king. They didn't have a short war. Uh, Churchill's ancestor, the Duke of Marlborough, was involved in that uh, war. Uh, And again, it was the same thing. And uh, James I fled to sorry, James II, fled to France and lived out his life there and had a son who later became the young pretender, is what they called him. And so that strife in British politics about where does the authority of the crown come from, that, that echoes in the American Revolution, which of course took it much further and, and early took it much further.
0: At 1688 is the time of the Glorious Revolution in which Marlborough and others deposed James II and replaced him on the throne with the first of the Georges. But the American people, the colonists, are watching all that. And i like to tell my law students, Dr. I'm got get about a minute to the break, that you really can't go wrong if you study English history prior to 1763 because the revolution has has great, great roots in what England's common man insisted upon, which was liberty.
1: That's right. And that's, so, you know, you got to, uh, if we read this, causes necessity of taking up arms, we will see two views, let's call them for right now, your view and my view, of what's going on. And John Dickinson's view is, we are demanding the rights of Englishmen, and we don't want disunion from
0: England. And Thomas Jefferson takes a much more radical view. And uh, We'll come back. And talk about those two views, because we are going to talk about causes and necessities of taking up arms, which you may never have heard of, which is why we do the Hillsdale Dialogue here on The Hugh Hewitt Show. Somewhere in the world, news is happening. You'll hear it here first, but only if you're here when Hugh Hewitt continues. America, it's you here at the Hilltale Dialogue underway with Dr. Larry Arn for many, many weeks. We've been talking about pre revolutionary America prior to 1776. What happened? How did we get there? And through the pen and words of people like Ben Franklin. And after the break, we're going to take up this, this particular reading cause and necessities of taking up arms. But in this short segment, Dr. and I wanted to ask you um, the Duke of Buckingham died, and there was a funeral. And Elizabeth II was there by herself because of COVID restriction. And there's a monarch who dealt with Churchill. And every other person said, did you, and you're married to an English woman and you have an English in-laws. What did you make of the ceremony and the man and the woman he left behind? And as she sat there all alone, did you watch it? Did you have any thoughts on it?
1: Uh, well, no, I talked to my wife about all that stuff. And from her, I have learned to love the queen. And, uh, and also Philip, her husband consort, he's called. Uh, he, was, uh, he was a tremendous man. He was a tough, strong man. He was an attentive father, sometimes to the pain of his children, because he was, he was uh, well, he was stern. Uh, he was always very attentive to her. He had a hard job. He was a proud man. He was an important man. And he didn't really have any power, and and th- they made that work as well as anybody's ever made it work, and for longer than anyone has made it work. Uh, it you know the co- the queen I I uh, you know I'm an American right, so I always thought it was kind of funny to have a queen, and uh, I, I think you know I'm an American. I think the titles in the Catholic Church, which I respect, are also kind of funny, right? But I, I once said. I don't understand why the woman has been there so long and she doesn't let her son take over. He's getting to be an old man. And my wife just replied in a flash. She said, you just have to read the coronation oath. She took an oath to do it as long as she could, right? So in other words, here's this woman who's bound, it's almost like being a nun, you know. She's bound her life to her duty, to her country, and so did her husband. And they carried that off as well as ever.
0: And she is almost a pre-modern figure. She, I think she drove the lorry during the war. I right? She was serving in wartime London as part of the transportation corps, as I recalled. And her father was there throughout the entire And she became queen very young. And here she is still standing. Yeah. You know, it's just remarkable, actually. If you look at her today, you've got to.
1: You, 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 I, I, I encourage people who are interested in the Queen to go look at photographs of her over her life. Because, first of all, the Queen is a tremendous horsewoman. She was athletic. She was, you know, she, she was one with a horse when she was on it. She loved to be on them. And second, she was. Uh, Churchill described her. And see, the woman's over 90 years old, right? And that means she's born. In the 1930s, is that right? And so, look look what she saw. Churchill, when he first saw her as a little girl, said, "This is an Amazon princess." Huh? She, I didn't know that. She looks like a conquering woman, and he adored her. Uh, Martin Gilbert went away for Easter weekend at Windsor Castle, which is a kind of a formal deal, and you know, really cool. He wouldn't tell me about it over the phone. He had to uh he had to he said "I can't you have to come over here and have dinner, so I did, and he said uh, it was the only word is magical because first of all, in the court uh you know the Turkish ambassador was there, I happen to remember, and uh in the court, there's no possibility of embarrassment or unease because every time you're at loose ends, somebody walks over to you who's the Earl of something, and he knows everything about you." He's a brilliant <laughs> conversationalist. Martin said if I'd forgotten to put my trousers on to come down to dinner, that would have been okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, I uh, having my knowledge of of the royal family being limited to the crown, uh one made it look like it was awful for Margaret Thatcher to go. And I just can't believe that for the reason you just described. Um, no, that uh you know, that's
1: Unusual. First of all, you you can't really know what the monarch thinks about the prime minister because they're careful about that. But that she didn't get along with Margaret Thatcher? I, 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 unbelievable! Unbelievable! They were obviously, warm to each other
0: in public. We're coming back to resume the causes and necessities of taking up arms. Go nowhere, America. It's The Hugh Hewitt Show.
1: of a non-stop action-packed
0: information blitz. The Hugh Hewitt Show is coming right back. Welcome back, America. This is Hugh Hewitt. I'm joined by Dr. Larry Arne. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. Uh, we do this each week. All of them are collected at HughForHillsdale.com, and everything Hillsdale is at Hillsdale.edu. And in one minute, I want to summarize for you, after the flourishing of the colonies at great hardship and extraordinary sacrifice and danger, the French and the British went to war, and that became the Cousins War, uh, the French and Indian War, and we fought alongside of our cousins, the English, against the French, who'd come down and allied with some of the tribes of the interior, and fought a very uh, bitter and difficult war, and won. And then King George wanted the colonists to pay for it. And that set off a series of exe- events that began in 1763 and extended to 1775, culminating in the uh, Second Continental Congress. Any commentary from you, Dr. Arn, on 1763 to 1775? A lot of Americans mix up Lexington and Concord and Bunker Hill and and uh, John Adams and the Boston Massacre and the Boston Tea Party, and it's all in that period of time. But basically, things became strained.
1: That's right. and And there's violence. See, I mean it it uh you know, look at the troubles of our own time and lord knows where they're going to lead, but things are intensifying all the time, right? And and uh that's, you know, one hopes that both sides will back off from the worst, but right now the party in power is not backing up much. Uh and so this is it's like that, right? And conversations are affected by it and the committees of correspondence are started by Sam Adams, who's terribly important in these times because he's the leader who talks hard and talks independence pretty early. And his cousin, John Adams, comes along with him pretty fast behind. And then, on the other hand, in this thing that we're reading today in the Declaration of Causes of Taking Up Arms, Uh, That's written by two people, John Dickinson of Delaware and Thomas Jefferson of uh, Virginia. And the differences of opinion that are being resolved right now are present in this document.
0: And it's July 6th of 1775. It is a full year before the Declaration of Independence, and it is after Lexington and Concord.
1: Yeah, and this this document, that's right. And and by the way, John Hancock a year later, a year minus 2 days later, will vote against independence in the Continental Congress. He voted against the declaration of independence. And uh and he he was he was an interesting man because he laid down first and powerfully a lot of the arguments that led to independence. Those arguments are What's a human being, and what are his rights, and how may he rightly be governed, right? That's what the Declaration of Independence is about, and this document mirrors that very much. It mirrors the Declaration of Independence, except this paragraph, which is the penultimate paragraph. Lest this declaration should disquiet the minds of our friends and fellow subjects in any part of the empire, We assure them that we mean not to dissolve that union which has so long and so happily subsisted between us and which we sincerely wish to be restored. Necessity has driven us, not yet driven us, into that desperate measure. See, So we're still loyal. Now, we know that's a compromise, not only because of what Thomas Jefferson wrote later, but also, here's what he wrote in 1774, at the end of one of my favorite documents, a summary view of the rights of British America. This is toward the end, and this is how Thomas Jefferson can write. "'Let those flatter who fear "'it is not an American art. "'To give praise where it is not due "'might be well from the venal, "'but would ill beseem those "'who are asserting the rights of human nature. "'They know, and will therefore say, "'that kings are the servants, "'not the proprietors of the people.
0: "'Open your breast, sire,' Too liberal and expanding thought. <laughs> well, Dickinson is is. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure who you identified with Dickinson in this modern era but he's trying very hard to tether a horse that's in full gallop. I mean it's, it's not th- there is a paragraph in the causes and necessities about General Gage who is not going to win any votes in the colonies for having taken possession of the town of Boston and then it goes lawyer-like. There are these lawyers again at work. Is a uh, is Dickinson a lawyer, by the way? Jefferson is not, but he read the law. Um, maybe he is a lawyer. Did he actually practice law? No, I don't think so. I don't think so either. I think he read in the law. but oh, he studied maybe- law in the Middle Temple. Yeah. All right. There you go. I Because th- he has a, a lawyer's mind when it comes to laying out specifics. And in this, uh, I guess it's paragraph 35, they, they recount everything that Gage has done, marching on Lexington, killing people in Concord, Um, rounding up the arms of the people of Boston, saying, we'll give them back, and then not giving them back. And by this perfidy, wives are separated from their husbands, children from their parents, the aged and sick from their relations and friends. This is all an appeal to reason, right? They're trying to persuade George III or Lord North, because they're particularly harsh about Lord North, to give it up and stop acting this way. Well, see, that's the the exact parallel of the of the
1: uh, let facts be submitted to a candid world, and then the list of those facts, there are 17 paragraphs in that part, middle part of the Declaration of Independence, and that's a list of all the bad stuff the king and the parliament did. And see, that's part of the... Uh, you know, we're we're, we're becoming acquainted again in America with the fundamentals because the debate is fundamental. And and, uh, if you just read, you know, the authors of the right of revolution, Locke and Sidney and such, they will explain that uh, you have the right, every person, and any group of people have the right, any time. Lincoln proclaimed this, by the way, in the face of secession, to throw off the government and substitute a new one for it. But you don't want to do that lightly because it'll, in Locke, it's called the appeal to heaven, which means the appeal to force. In other words, you place your hands in the hands of you place yourself in the hands of providence because that can be dangerous, right? And so these people have a very lively sense that they've got a lot to preserve and they shouldn't be reckless about it. And they, you know, they all agree about they come to agree about that except you know the, the loyalists who are in a minority and who many of them went to Canada uh, everybody followed down this line of reasoning that John Dickinson almost as much as Thomas Jefferson broadcast and made known and everybody, everybody was reading these books and and uh, and so revolution was justified and then the harder question is is it prudent will it work can we do it uh, and there is where among the people who were revolutionaries, and Dickinson was one of them, that's where they differed, right up to the vote on the Declaration of Independence. And, and, uh, Dickinson, he was, he, he, it wasn't just, everybody was afraid of the war, but, you know, that, that, that was the main obstacle early on. You know, the Stamp Act is in 1765. The, French and Indian War and the Seven Years' War in Europe ends in 1763, and in the treaty, uh, uh, the king set a boundary toward western, westward expansion in the New World, you know, to protect the Native Americans, by the way. Well, people didn't like that, because they'd come over here for land, right? So right away, there's a cause of dispute, but nobody imagines at the beginning that this is going to lead to a revolutionary war which was in the first case a civil war. Nobody thinks that, right? But they come to think that. And by 1775, uh, there's fighting going on. George Washington is appointed the head of the Continental Army, and they've already named it that, although they don't know how big the continent is. And, they, and it shows their ambitions, right? And, they, and so, yeah, thing, it, 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 this peril of war
0: recedes as a deterrent because now we got war. Now we have war. I, I am struck in the causes document by the frustration that overflows. This must be Dickinson writing this. Fruitless were all the entreaties, arguments, and eloquence of an illustrious band of the most distinguished peers and commoners. He's talking about at Burke here, I think. Parliament adopted an insidious maneuver calculated to divide us, to establish a perpetual auction of taxations where colonies should bid against colonies. They're very angry that. They cannot come and reason together. That's what is is manifest to me throughout causes and necessity of taking up arms, is that they just don't understand where the Brits are. And so Dr. Arndt, since you're married to an English woman and therefore acquainted with the Crown, what were they thinking?
1: Well, they were idiots. I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, the, I, and here's why one is liberated to say that. I mean, of course, they were extremely capable men, but... The greatest men in Parliament were Burke and Pitt, and, you know, Pitt the Great, both Pitts, elder and younger, and the the younger is the one who would soon lead Britain through the great wars with Napoleon. Those guys were friends to the American Revolution and to the claim that the Americans, and see, what, what is the claim? Just remember the specific claim. It's one reason why this reform of election stuff is so fundamental. Uh, they were not represented in Parliament, and Parliament was taxing them. And the first and most important check on the government is that whatever the government does, the the governed have to consent to it. And there needs to be a means of effective consent. And that is just common dogma in, in all the liberals in Britain, Whigs and liberals, And it's and most of the Tories, by the way, and very it's just uniform dogma in in the United States, where in the colonies where they had been practicing that for nearly a century and a half, and so this these acts that they start passing that tax them directly, and that starts right ever you know in the instrument that ended that Seven Years War, well they're alarmed right away. And then, you know, they, and they're frustrated, right, because they write a lot of stuff, pamphlets and letters to each other and communications with the king. And, and, uh, and then they think, if we could just get over there and talk to him and send the right guy. And the best guy they had was Ben Franklin. And he just didn't get along with them at all. And then it's very significant that uh, Franklin left London and went to Paris, and they just loved him over there. He was like uh, a rustic, you know, he's a very sophisticated man, but he could appear to be just about however he wanted to. And so they just toasted him and thought, this is the coolest guy we ever met. And so that, just just that, just the the difference in manners and outlook. And, and that, Franklin was very capable of, you know, representing a wild new world that nobody had ever seen. And he was very capable of sophisticated conversation. So he could Which do is, whatever he
0: needed to do. That's why we read him first. But it was, it was unavailing. It had proceeded too far. When we come back from break, we'll talk about how far it had proceeded, in fact, and why. Don't go anywhere, America. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. Visit hillsdale.edu.
1: This is the Hugh Hewitt Show.
0: America. We are talking about pre-revolutionary America, running up to the Declaration of Independence. And Larry and I talk about the Declaration of Independence uh, every Fourth of July. So you can go and listen to that in the universe or over at Hillsdale.edu. But I had not before read this broadside that you dug up from somewhere. I guess it was over at the University of Michigan that they found in General Gage's papers. It's anonymous, but it includes in it. Uh, sort of typical exhortation of the time, right before the revolution. My countrymen, we must either unsheath our swords or be slaves. Your understandings would be affronted were the last to be put to you. The day is come. Strike these invaders of your liberty, these enemies of your God, and not let them any longer pollute this insulum sacrum. Yet that you have got no swords, sell your garments and buy one. This is not exactly the stuff of come, let us reason together, Dr. Arn.
1: No, no. And that, you know, the other thing is, remember what these people were like. One praise the American people are still like this. They, they in this Declaration of Causes, uh, they recite, and it's my favorite part of it, by the way, what the colonists have done, which is they've come to a new world of which nobody knew anything, and they have made a thriving civilization. And they've done it by their own efforts. And it never occurred to anybody, when they got hungry or when they were attacked, to write to England for help. It was too far away. And so they had built a civilization with their own hands and with relatively little conversation with anybody in England. And they they liked England. England governed America for the first 125 or so years the way England governed Hong Kong, which was that Hong Kong basically ran Hong Kong. But uh, England supplied, they sort of took the big political controversy out of it because there was the British Constitution and there was a governor general and he was the executive and he ruled with a very light hand. And so it was great, you know. And uh, it just didn't occur to anybody that these governors appointed by the king would start overturning their laws and even, soon enough, proroguing their legislatures, which is one of the causes of action in the Declaration of Independence.
0: And and when that point is reached, um, Jefferson says, I think a little bit slyly, that this is just elementary, what we're doing. It's Aristotle, Cicero, Locke, and Sidney, etc., all said that we could do this. I think that's actually being a little bit humble, Dr. Arndt, isn't he? Uh, because... Whatever these books might have said, they didn't anticipate what happened in 1775 and 1776.
1: Yeah, it reminds me of a lot of things in Winston Churchill. You know, when very artful people are being humble, there might be more than one thing going on there. (laughs) (laughs) And, of course, the effect of that, which he wrote long after the Declaration, uh, the effect of that is to further establish it as an expression of the American mind, right, which is what he wanted it to be. The, the purpose of that document was to define the cause of the revolution and the cause of the nation. And they were very deeply understanding of such things. And uh, that means that, you know how uh, celebrity culture works, or what you do, everybody does. Um, it's always the I word. I did this and I did that. Right. Well, the trouble with that line of work is you're not inviting anybody to join. Yep. And, and uh, Jefferson, they you know, Lincoln, too, you know, these uh, modern presidents. It's, it's the thing that I like least about Donald Trump, although Ned, I liked him. Uh, that is, he talked about himself all the time. And it was kind of almost a caricature, and it was part of his stick, and I think it was important to the success he had. But now, you know, I mean, they're all kind of like that, right? Uh, Joe Biden, you know. He's uh, Bob Dole used to talk about himself in third person. Bob Dole thinks. <laughs> you know? yep. and, uh, and, you know, who cares what he thinks? State the facts. State
0: the State facts the principles, and, right? and take it to Congress, That's which right. they'll debate it. State the it's, facts and take it to Congress. And we began as a Congress, not as an executive. And we'll come back to that. Because uh, even the hapless Continental Congress got the Northwest Ordinance right. And next week, we're going to talk about that. I would refer again, everyone, to our 4th of July show, which we play every year on the 4th of July. We've talked about the Declaration many times, Dr. Arn and I, and we have summarized it in our 4th of July. We're going to skip over that next week and go right to the Northwest Ordinance. But wanted you to understand one great thing. It took a long time, but boy, when it broke, the storm broke, Dr. Arndt. That's
1: right. That's right. And then it was a long, ugly war, often desperate. You know, wonderful, glorious victories, you know, uh, at sea and on the land, and then betrayals, Benedict Arnold, and then a freezing army, right? And then they bottled up the British in 1783 at Yorktown, 1781 at Yorktown, and two years later they extracted a treaty, a generous treaty, from the king, which, of course, the British then proceeded to violate for a long time.
0: And we and but meanwhile, that Continental Congress did the best they could. It wasn't enough, and from that emerges the frame of silver to protect the apple of gold to which we have been referring, and we will talk about next week. Dr. Larry Aaron, thank you, everyone listening. Thank you for listening. Hillsdale Dialogues are all collected. Get your homeschooling group together and go listen to them. Get your college classes together and go listen to them. Be educated, and then if you want an educated citizenry, send your kids to Hillsdale College, hillsdale.edu, for an application. Get cracking. The door shuts pretty soon. I'll be back next week. Thank you, Adam and Ben, Harley and Dwayne. It is The Hugh Hewitt Show. But you absolutely, positively need the truth, This
1: is where you turn. This is the Hugh Hewitt Show.